The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. The scripture reading this morning is actually from three different places. We're going to do three short readings this morning. We're going to start in the book of Revelation on page 967, and then we're going to flip back to Matthew and read two passages there in chapters 6 and 7. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to start in Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation." And now turn with me to Matthew 6. We're going to start in verse 9. That's on page 761. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now turn the page with me to Matthew 7, and we'll read verses 7 through 12, starting in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you'll want to go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Revelation 5 and keep your finger there in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, I put these verses out this past week on Slack. If you saw that, obviously Meredith just read them for us, and that's because uh, what I want to try to do is let the authority of the Scripture build an argument for us this morning. And there's a bit of a logical progression to these verses before us that are going to be unpacked for us as we would just work through our time in the text submitting to God's Word this morning And it's going to go something like this. Because of the truth, the reality of what we are going to see in Revelation chapter 5, because this is God's forever vision where we're going, let's reel back to our present tense and ask, how does the application of that future reality invade our present tense time and space? How can we learn from what Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, And what he says towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, as it relates to this idea of ethnic harmony, 
praying for and pursuing ethnic harmony. So this is the third sermon in a little short series we always do on the front of the year where we talk about not only the Word, but we talk about prayer, and then we look to the issue of the sanctity of life. And so that is the idea, the topic we're going to cover today. Our sermon title is just simply going to be called, On Earth As It Is in Heaven. On Earth As It Is in Heaven. And the main idea, as you just heard me talking about, is this. Because Revelation 5 tells us that there will be ethnic harmony in heaven. That is what you're going to see in Revelation chapter 5. Because this is the truth of where we are going as God's redeemed people, it is right for God's blood-bought family to live in light of that reality in a very key way. It is right for God's blood-bought family to pray for and practically pursue ethnic harmony on earth as it is in heaven. Okay? So this is where we're going this morning. I would cherish prayer from you as we turn to prayer right now, mainly so that I would be as if God were just setting me off to the side of the stage and what you hear clearly is the Word of God. We're not here to just hear the mere words of a man. We're here to hear about the living God, to hear about Jesus Christ and what He is doing in this world as the Lion of Judah, who is also the Lamb who was slain and who beyond a shadow of a doubt is ransoming, purchasing a people for God from every nation, language, people, and ethnicity. Okay? So let's pray. I encourage you with language similar to what you just heard from Pastor John Kleinschmidt. Let's go to the Lord together as a corporate body of believers and ask for the Holy Spirit to empower this time so that we might leave here changed and refueled by some gospel gasoline, as it were, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we are here to see your name magnified. We are here to see more clearly the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished by his blood shed on the cross. So we're asking, Holy Spirit, would you empower the preaching of your word right now? As John received this revelation and put it down in words for us, you, Holy Spirit, carried him along. As our brother Matthew was recording the words of Christ that we're going to look at, it was the Holy Spirit carrying him along. And so we're asking you, Holy Spirit, who dwells within us if we are in Christ, that you would give us insight into the words that lie before us, words that we have because you carried these brothers along. Help us to see Jesus clearly this morning. And then give us the conviction, Lord God, to walk out these doors into the next six days, in the next 22 hours, living lives that align with the truth that lies before us in God's perfect and inerrant word. I pray these things in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Well, as you just heard me say, over the last two weeks, we've heard from Chance and we've heard from Pastor John Kleinschmidt sermons, sermons about God's Word. 
sermons about what it looks like to answer the call to be fervent in prayer. And this morning, really, there's a sense in which these two categories are converging this morning as we turn again, like we do every Sunday, to look at God's Word and then more narrowly focus in on a very specific prayer that we find on the lips of Jesus as He's teaching His disciples how to pray. And what we're going to do is see these two categories converge this morning. What I want to do is take those realities of looking to God's Word, turning to the Sermon on the Mount and this idea of prayer on the lips of Jesus, and ask the question, what do these things mean for us as it relates to the topic of the sanctity of human life? Now, to talk about the sanctity of human life is to consider, I would argue, a very large umbrella of topics. While it most definitely covers the topic of abortion, which we have covered at various times during this particular sermon in the past, I would also argue that the sacred nature of human life isn't merely limited to the preborn in the womb. To be pro-life is to care about the flourishing of human life from the womb to the tomb so that issues like biblical justice, issues like the relationship between men and women, issues like ethnic harmony are to be held to dearly just as much as we hold to issues of preborn life in the womb to be precious. So for that reason, we're going to go to God's Word this morning in order to consider the right prayerful pursuit of ethnic harmony on earth as it is in heaven. So where should we begin in just thinking about these things? Laying a foundation. This is not going to be a sermon that's going to say everything that could be said about this topic. But we're just laying some steps, some foundation work so that we can just say, if the word of God is true, and it is, and God's word says this in relation to this topic, and it does say some things in relation to this, then how can we, as citizens of heaven, begin to say, what does it look like for me to live now in line with where I know God is wrapping up the whole of redemptive history? I want my present tense reality to line up with God's forever vision of redemption. I would argue to begin to just lay a foundation work for that, we actually need to begin at the end. And that's why we go to the book of Revelation where we see point number one, a glorious harmony in heaven. A glorious harmony in heaven. That's what is going on in those two verses that Meredith read for us this morning. When you see John the Apostle write down what he wrote in verses 8, 8 and 9. So when you look in your copy of Scripture at Revelation chapter 5 and you begin reading there in verse 8, what you see is that it has just been revealed that there is someone worthy to open the scroll. There is one who is worthy to take the scroll of human history in the context of Revelation 5, this scroll that has all of human history, where it is going, how it's going to end, 
the question of Revelation 5 is, is there anyone worthy to rule and to reign with sovereign might, good power, majestic rule as a king, as a lord, as the Christ? Is there anyone worthy to unravel the scroll, as it were, to say, I am the one who is worthy to rule and reign at the center of all things? And there is that instance in Revelation 5 where John seems to believe and think no one is worthy, and that's why he begins to weep. But then, as Charles said, the elder is like, weep, says, John, stop, weep no more. The Lion of Judah, the Root of David, is the Lamb who was slain. He is the one worthy to rule and reign at the center of all things. And so you get down to verse 8, and what we begin to see is that the one who is worthy, the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, takes the scroll from the right hand of God, and the Lamb of God, who was slain for the salvation of sinners, steps forward saying, I am the one who's worthy. Verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, here is what happens in heaven at the response to him, the Lord Jesus taking the scroll, the four living creatures, verse 8, and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy. When we sing the song on Sunday mornings, is he worthy? Is he worth? This is Revelation 5 we're singing. Because the song of redemption in Revelation 5 is he is worthy. That's why we proclaim that with exclamation at the end of that song we sing on Sunday mornings. Worthy are you, Lion of Judah, Lamb who was slain. Worthy are you to take the scroll. Worthy are you to open its seals. Why? Verse 9, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. You see, in this Revelation 5 scene, what we see is this. The Apostle John gets a peek behind the curtain of heaven, so to speak. And what he sees is a glimpse of God's forever vision. Here he is saying, this is what heaven is going to be like. Heaven is going to be a cohesive chorus of praise, forever erupting with the song of redemption. It's not like this chorus of praise in verses 8 and 9 is sung once and people are like, Ooh, what's next? No, the reason why heaven is filled with an infinite amount of infinities, the reason why heaven never ends is because you can never exhaust the praise that is worthy to be given to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're never going to wake up one day in heaven after a thousand multitudes of thousands of years and go, well, I guess that was interesting. What's next? There is nothing next. The point of all creation is to culminate in the forever praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be a cohesive chorus of forever praise erupting with the song of redemption in heaven. Why? Verse 9 says it's all because Jesus, the Lion of Judah, is the Lamb who was slain. And this makes him worthy, it says down in verse 12, to receive power 
worthy to receive wealth, worthy to receive wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Christ is declared worthy because he was slain. He is worthy to forever receive worship because by his blood he ransomed. Very crucial concept in the scriptures. He ransomed, that is, he purchased people back. It taps into that slavery kind of idea. When Romans 6, Paul says, outside of Christ, you are a slave to sin. Slave to death. We need somebody who can pay the price we could not pay ourselves. To purchase us out of death. To purchase us from our enslavement to sin. And Revelation 9 is saying Jesus is the one who paid the debt. He ransomed his people, a people for God, purchasing a people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. In other words, Christ died so that there might be a people from every people group among his people. Do you see what Revelation 5 is saying? There are people being purchased from every people group here on earth so that these people will now become known as His people. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And the book of Revelation tells us He is saving a multi-tribal, a multi-language, multi-ethnic people who will live with Him forever in a new heaven and in a new earth. This, friends, is the end destination of God's redemptive plan. The end destination of God's redemption is a glorious, harmonious kaleidoscope of skin color, kaleidoscope of spoken languages, kaleidoscope of cultures and ethnicities unified by the common denominator, common denominator of nothing else other than Jesus has saved me. That is the unifying thread that will knit together this multi-reality in heaven. Listen, in heaven, listen, in heaven, all notions, all notions of racial superiority have been shattered and broken by the Lamb of God. All notions of racial superiority have been shattered and broken by the Lamb of God. So whether black brown or white, whether Asian, Indian, African, American, all people stand in the same need of a Savior. They stand in the same need of a Savior. This is why there is a glorious harmony in heaven. It's because only one race of humanity exists in heaven, and that is the chosen race of men and women whom God has caused to be born again. A purchased people, says the Apostle Peter, who are now a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. A ransomed people who will forever proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. A blood-bought people who once were not a people but now are God's people. A blood-bought people who once had not received mercy and have now received mercy. Listen, the single harmony, the single racial harmonizing, the single ethnic unifying power in this world is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because when you peel back and look into Revelation 5, what you find is this. Yes, multiple ethnicities. Yes, multiple languages. Yes, multiple peoples. Yes, multiple tribes. But they are identified in the main as not by their races or ethnicities. They're, they're identified in the main as the chosen race of born-againers, if you want to say it that way. And that is the unifying, harmonizing power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the good news that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, verse 45, is the power that levels all notions of racial superiority. Brothers and sisters, because the lamb was slain, because he conquered the grave, because he resurrected unto newness of life, the Jesus family is a blood-bought people from everywhere. And it's this forever vision of ethnic harmony in heaven that is then to inform how we are to live here on earth. So do you see the, the step I'm making here? I'm, I'm trying to establish the foundation. If it's true that this is God's plan for his forever heaven to be marked by this beautiful harmony of people from all kinds of places, groups, tribes, languages, and tongues, because they're unified by the blood in Christ, then the question is, how do we sort of stand on our tippy toes and go, because that is true, how do we reel that back into our present tense moment and go, I I, as a citizen of heaven, born again by the living God, how do I align my life so that what I know to be true and believe to be true because God has revealed it to be true in the world, how does that invade my present tense time and space so that my life aligns with the truth of the Word of God? That's the question I'm swinging over into now as we go into Matthew 6 and Matthew 7, Okay. This forever vision of ethnic harmony in heaven that informs how we can live here on earth. And one of those ways that we can live is this way. It's by giving ourselves to prayer in regard to this matter. Praying here on earth so that life in the present tense would look increasingly more like heaven as we know it will be. So when we turn to the Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, what we discover is point number two, a powerful prayer for our place. A powerful prayer taught to us, given to us by Jesus for our time, for our place, for where you live in your neighborhood, for where you work, for where you rest, where you play, those places of restoration in our city, these places where there is the absence of racial ethnic harmony, how can we begin to live in such a way where what we know to be true about Revelation 5 invades our places? I would argue that in the Sermon on the Mount, a viable application is we begin to pray for this. So turn over to Matthew 6, and look how Jesus teaches his disciples about prayer. He begins in verse 9 by saying... Pray then like this, 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, notice, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the awesome nature of this prayer, what we just typically, typically call the Lord's Prayer, right there in Matthew 6, you can also find a, a, a bit more condensed version in Luke 11. The awesome nature of this prayer often just sort of like just shoots right over our heads because of how familiar we are with this prayer. We just say it. Sometimes we say it in our liturgy in the mornings. But what we can do is miss just how radical this prayer truly is. And what you need to know is that for Jesus' first audience, as he is teaching his disciples how to pray, the first word in that prayer would have bowled them over when Jesus said, pray like this. First word, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and on down the line. That first word, our, in the opening teaching of Jesus on prayer is extremely radical, and the radical nature of it misses it misses us because we're just so familiar with it. We don't quite grasp and wrestle with the realities of what Jesus is saying. And the reason why it's radical is because Jesus doesn't teach us to pray to the Father. He doesn't say, Brady, when you begin to pray, pray like this, my Father in heaven. He begins by teaching his disciples to pray corporately to our Father in heaven. So to pray to our Father in heaven, what Jesus is teaching and giving to his disciples is this. He's giving them a, a bag of words that is ultimately family speech. He's helping you remember when you pray to our Father and when I pray to our Father, there's something going on where we go this way vertical in prayer to the Father, but we're not saying my and my, we're saying our because we're meant to go, he's our Father in heaven so that we can look at one another and go like, well, he's your Father too? Well, he's my Father too. I know our skin color is different, and I know our personalities are like oil and water, and I know that this is different, and that is different, and this is different, and that. But there's this common denominator. He's our Father in heaven. There's something incredibly radical about that reality when you just slow down and you lean into that. Our Father in heaven is family speech. It reminds us that we are not only blood-bought children of God, but we're ultimately also siblings to one another in the same Jesus family. In this way, saints, prayer reminds us of what we just saw in Revelation chapter 5. To pray to our Father is to corporately declare we are family. We're part of the Jesus family. In the Jesus family, our shade of melanin might vary, our cultural background differ, and our ethnic heritage have nothing in common, but because we've both been ransomed by Jesus' blood, we can both pray to our Father in heaven, because that's who He is. He's your Father, He's my Father, that makes Him our Father. So just imagine, just imagine what this means for our Sunday morning gathering. In one particular instance of our Sunday morning gathering, there comes a point in time where the gathering pastor says, we're going to pray together. And when we go to the Lord, Father in prayer, and we go with 
this in the background of the operating system of our hearts and minds informed by Scripture, that we right now as a corporate body of believers during the pastoral prayer time, we are praying to our Father in heaven. We are engaging in a Revelation 5 reality, and we're reminding one another that Revelation 5 in the multi-tribal, multi-peopled, multi-ethnic, multi-language realities are even invading our present tense time and space during a five to seven minute pastoral prayer. Why? Because we are corporately looking left, corporately looking right and going, we are not just one homogenous group of uniform people where we're just carbon copies of one another. There is a whole host of differences among us. And what we are saying is our father, we need you to help us neighbor our neighbors. Our father, we need you to speed the gospel forward in St. Louis. Our father, we're praying praying that you would remind us that we are sent out. What we are doing is saying, man, Revelation 5 is true. Revelation 5 is true. Revelation 5 is true. We are in the Jesus family because we're praying together as a family to our Father in heaven. Radical stuff, yeah? But we just miss it so often, don't we? Just because, ah, I don't know, our Father in heaven, how we just sort of let it just dribble out of our mouths in some rote sort of fashion. But Jesus is saying, listen, just just imagine, prayer brings the heavenly realities of Revelation 5 to bear in our present time and space. In corporate prayer, we actually get a future foretaste of what's to come. It's amazing how to, to think about this. It's amazing how the glorious harmony that we will know in heaven can actually be tasted here on earth through something like a time of pastoral prayer among a Jesus people gathered on a Sunday morning. It's amazing to think about that. So, Jesus says, God is our Father. Also, God is our Father. He's compassionate. He's caring as the Father. And God is our Father in heaven, he says, sovereign in power, fully capable to advance his plans. Thus, because he is our Father in heaven, pray like this, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Notice the triple yours, your name, your kingdom, your will. God's blood-bought people are a praying people to know the ransoming purchase of the Lamb just pulls out of you prayer. And not only do we pray for God's name to be honored in all the world, that's what it means to pray, hallowed be your name. That's just a fancy way of saying, God, your, your name is the only name worthy of being honored amongst everybody here on earth. And I'm praying that as it is in heaven in this way to be here on earth. It's right to pray for the success of the gospel in the world. Lord, we want your kingdom to come. But notice, Jesus says, we also pray for his will or his purposes to advance here on earth in the same way it does in heaven. So now, the question is, to pray for God's will to be done on earth that is in heaven, it means something. It means you need to know your Bibles so you know what God's will is. Yeah? If Jesus is saying, I want you to pray like this, Father... In heaven, I want your will to be done. Then you need to know what God's will is. And the way you know what God's will is, as it relates to any host of issues, is you need to know your Bibles. 
And so we open our Bibles, and what we begin to see is that we discover not only the Father's moral will for His people, but we also discover His decreed will for all of human history. So to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what it has at its core is a multitude of applications. I'm just telling you, the application of that singular prayer is vast. It's multitude. Because God is revealing His will left and right all over the place from Genesis to Revelation. But when you narrow it down to the way the Father reveals His will for us, one such application we can say is it relates to the sanctity of human life and even more narrowly to this issue of ethnic harmony under the umbrella of the sanctity of human life. We can say this, one such application to the prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is to pray in light of God's decreed will for redemptive history. God's will for redemptive history looks like Revelation 5, chapter 9. Revelation 5, verse 9. So to know from Revelation 5 that heaven will be filled with the glorious harmony of ransom people for God from every tribe, language, and nation, it is right for his blood-bought people to pray for ethnic harmony on earth as it is in heaven. So do you, do you see the connection I'm trying to make there? This isn't, I'm trying to make this not real, real complicated because that's true. Jesus said, pray in light of what the revealed will is true. And so I'm just going to pray, Lord, I know what it is in heaven. I'm asking you to make it on earth as it is in heaven. It is right for God's blood-bought people to give themselves to prayer in this way. It is right to align our present tense prayers with our Father's future plans. Because the future reality of Revelation 5 is true, saints, I want my life and I want your life to reflect this in a way that makes sense with the truth of Scripture. So when people begin to maybe eavesdrop on the prayers of the saints broadly, corporately within the big C church, and maybe even more narrowly within the small C church known as Delta, if someone were to sort of come up and put their ears to the wall, so to speak, and hear the corporate prayers of God's people, and they hear them praying along these lines, the questions will become like, why do you do this? Why do you care? What's the motivating factor here? And what we can begin to say is because this is the will of the Father in heaven. This is what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. This is where the, the summarizing, culminating point of human history is going to go. And because that is true, I let that inform how I live here on earth. That is why I pray in the way I pray. You see, saints, what I'm not doing is and what we're not saying as a church is this. We don't pray this way because we're, we're pursuing some kind of like ethnic racial tokenism, right? Where we look around and go, well, you know, it'd be nice to have like maybe like two brown people and one black person floating around and we just, we're a little too white and we need to be a little less white. And so we're just trying to like lean into this idea of tokenism where we just get some more people of color floating around so we just look a little bit more like heaven. That's the driving factor. That's not. That is not what I'm saying. I am not laying before us some kind of religious form of affirmative action. We're like, hey, we need to get a little bit more, you know, we're looking a little too 90% white, we need a little bit more 20% and 30%, you know, we've got to balance them. I am not saying that because I would argue the scriptures are not saying that. 
No, the reason why we pray this way is because God has revealed that his will is for his forever family to be a multi-ethnic family. Therefore, as a blood-bought member of his family, my desire is that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we pray. Because Revelation 5 is true, the blood-bought people pray for ethnic harmony to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we don't just stop there. We don't just stop at prayer. Most people, I would argue, as you talk to them, have just never thought about these things. And so if you were to ask them, like, how, what, what does this look like? How do the Revelation 5 realities invade our present time and space? Most people are like, yeah, I don't know. Just never thought about it. Most people are probably, if they've given some thought to it, be willing to say, well, we pray for it. Well, of course we pray for it. And I would think, I, I hope I've just laid out a viable argument from Scripture. If Revelation 5 is true, and Matthew 6 is true, the connection of it is right for God's blood bought people to pray in this way is true, that is good and right. But it's interesting that in the exact same sermon in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus not only teaches us how to pray for these things, but then he rounds the corner towards the end of the sermon and begins to say, because you are committing to pray for this, what you need to know is that you are going to be the answer to your own prayer. It's like that Matthew 9 reality. Jesus is like, look around. The harvest is ripe. It's plentiful. You need to pray for workers to go out into the harvest and reap souls ripe for salvation. The implication of that scripture is not that, Lord, would you raise up harvesters? Man, I sure hold those people out there go and answer that prayer. No, when you pray in this way, what you're doing is saying, I recognize that I am praying that God would help me to see I am the answer to my own prayer in this instance. I would argue Jesus is about to say the same as he turns us into those verses from Matthew 7 where we see a practical pursuit on earth. What does it look like to practically pursue this while we are a people who pray? And I think the answer is going to come there in verse 12. So our third point, a practical pursuit on earth, comes after you read verses 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. If you go home and you read those, what you'll see is that pretty famous language of Jesus saying, we need to ask, we need to seek, we need to knock, reminding us that we can truly rely on our Father who is in heaven. He uses that language again down there towards the end of those verses. We can rely on our Father who is in heaven to give good things to those who ask Him. But then notice that Jesus turns right on the heels of the ask, seek, knock passage, and He turns to verse 12. If your Bible is like my Bible, there's a little black heading there that says the golden rule. And then it rolls right into verse 12, where Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You see, it's no coincidence that in the same sermon where Jesus calls us to pray, he also calls us to take practical action. To pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not only looks to that distant Revelation 5 day when God's multi-ethnic chosen race will dwell in harmony forever, but it also recognizes that to pray in this way is to simultaneously commit to work for this goal. Verse 12 is often referred to as the golden rule, and there are a myriad of applications to what Jesus teaches in this verse. But in the application of this verse to this topic of sanctity of human life, and 
more narrowly ethnic harmony, one practical question would be to put yourself in, the, in another person's shoes and ask, self, would I want this to be done to me if I were in their shoes? If the tables were turned and I found myself in their situation, the way they are be treat, being treated someone of maybe an ethnic minority, different skin color, cultural background, language, whatever it might be, to stand there and look and say what is obvious is the way they're being mistreated in that moment is because of the difference that defines them. If I were in their shoes, would I want what they are receiving to happen to me? I mean, this is like kindergarten kind of stuff, yeah? And then the answer is, no, I wouldn't want this to be done to me. Then one implication is, well, then don't do it to others. Would I want to be made fun of? We could ask questions like this. Would I want to be made fun of because of the way I look? Would I want to be shunned by others because my cultural background is different from those around me? Would I want to be talked down to as an inferior because my shade of melanin is maybe a little bit darker than those around me? Would I want to be never invited over for dinner because the majority of my neighbors are just different from me? Would I want to never be considered for a job I'm qualified for because of my difference? Would I approve if people did not want to be my neighbor because of just how God has created me? Would I approve if no one would consider me for a home loan, though my credit is good because of the color of my skin? Would I approve if I was never considered for a promotion at work, though I am qualified for it? You see, if you were to put yourself into those situations and say, no, I would not like that to happen to me, then a practical, I mean, this is ground zero practicality here on the lips of Jesus. If you're like, no, I wouldn't want that to happen to me, then the, the implication is then don't do it to others. But notice that's not fully what Jesus says, does he? How does your Bible say Verse 12 reads, does Jesus say in verse 12, so if you don't want somebody to do something to you, don't do it to others? Is that what verse 12 reads? The answer is no, it does not. Jesus radically pushes the practical pursuit of these things to the place of not merely forbidding action, but to creatively proactively taking action. So not only should we put ourselves in the place of others and just say, if I were in their situation, would I want someone to do something to me? And I would say, no, then don't do it. That's forbidding language. Don't cross the line. Don't do it. But Jesus says we don't just not do things. We should step into that world and actually do to others what we would like 
to be done to us if we were in that place. So do you see the subtle difference there? It's a move from merely forbidding action to Jesus actually prescribing proactive taking of practical action towards others. Jesus did not say, do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. Instead, Jesus said, do to others what you would have them do to you. I'm telling you, saints, it is a subtle difference, but the subtle difference between the do not and the do is a huge difference that moves from merely forbidding action to prescribing it. So wired into the golden rule, wired into Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, is the invitation from the sovereign king who has revealed what his glorious heaven is going to look like. He is giving the invitation for the blood-bought people of God to pursue practical action in our relationships across ethnic lines and in every other way that you could possibly imagine. In short, one application of Christ's call to practically pursue God's will on earth as it is in heaven is to pursue what we at Delta would call just simply the call to neighbor your neighbors. Neighbor your neighbors. Do you recognize that you all have neighbors? Some of you be like, well, yeah, it's obvious. I mean, I live somewhere. And in the classic sense of the word neighbor, I have the person to the north, the south, the east, and the west. They're my neighbors. My hunch is that we're not all living in just one big homogenous, homogenized zone in our neighbors. Where every single person looks like you, acts like you, thinks like you, speaks like you, has the same background as you, where literally every single person is a carbon copy of you. And a good question to ask is, as I am neighboring my neighbors where I live, do I ever find that little hitch or that like giddy up in my soul where I'm just like, ooh, like why am I so easy to cross my street and talk to this neighbor, but maybe a little bit more hesitant to cross the street and talk to that neighbor? That's a viable question to ask. Why am I always inviting this neighbor over, maybe not this neighbor over? If the hinge point is, well, you know, they're a little different, they got that background, their skin color, or wherever it might be. But your neighborhood is not just necessarily where you live. For some of us, our neighborhoods is where we work. That's a neighborhood that you live in, so to speak. For some of us, our neighborhoods might look like the places of recreation where we rest and play. Like I go to the CrossFit box, I'm there every single day, and I meet these people, and these people like, these are my neighbors. For some of us, our neighbors are in those places of restoration, like working with Brad Lovin at Washington Street Mission or working with Chance and Hope Orphan Home. Some of these relationships that we have, these can be viable neighborhoods in which we find ourselves. And the question is, if I am called as a blood-bought person of God to be not just forbidding in my action, but to be creatively proactive in it, what does it look like for me to go into those neighborhoods where God has set the boundaries of my neighborhoods to plant myself and say, what does it look like for me to do to others as I'd have them do to you? Now, here's my caution, and then we're going to be done. Some of us might be thinking like this. Well, okay, well, you know, I live over in my neighborhood and whatever. I'm on the west side of town. It's just like white suburbia, right? What I'm not saying is go hop over to the tracks, head on the east side of town, and just try to make a black friend so you can try to obey Jesus. I'm not saying that. I don't think that's what Jesus is implying. Acts 17 tells us that Jesus has you where you're at because he sets the boundaries of our days. 
We're not asking to do anything additional. We're asking, what does it look like to be intentional? Intentional neighbors who neighbor. If Jesus, by his sovereign intention, has planted you in a particular neighborhood, look left, look right, and go, what does it look like for me to neighbor the people in my neighborhood where I live because this is where Jesus has me? Where does it look like me for to neighbor my neighbors? Because the job I have isn't pure happenstance. I have this job because the sovereign Lord has orchestrated his will to give me the job that I have. So I'm here. These are the people. These are my coworkers. These are the ones I do life with at the workplace. So what does it look like for me for to neighbor these neighbors in this place? The sovereign Lord, according to Acts 17, has given me the ability to go to the CrossFit gym, to always go to this particular Aldi on this side of town, to go to this restaurant and always be served by this barista or whatever it might be, and go, that's not happenstance. That is the sovereign Lord exercising Acts 17 in your life. That's your neighbor. And so to say, I'm not trying to heap a burden of be additional. Just go and do all these things. What I'm just saying is look left, look right. You're blood-bought. What does it look like to not only pray, but practically pursue in light of this idea in Matthew 7, verse 12? Listen, saints, as everyday disciples who live everyday lives, we are surrounded by opportunities to intentionally confess Jesus. They're just all around us. And for God's blood-bought family, One such opportunity to confess Jesus is found not only in how we pray for, not only in how we pray for, but practically pursue ethnic harmony in the world around us, not for the sake of merely pursuing ethnic harmony so we can say, look, everybody, we're a church who pursues ethnic harmony. We do this so that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ And the Christ at the center of that gospel might shine from this blood-bought people. Saints, my prayer is that within this blood-bought family called Delta, that God would grow a deep, prayerful, and practical conviction for these truths as we stumble and bumble and succeed and fail in the forward march of these things obeying the king, recognizing that when we fail and we will fail in some of these things, there's going to be grace, there's going to be mercy, and there's going to be help in our time of need as we continue to entrust ourselves to him by walking in obedience to what he has revealed to us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, we need you. We need you. I mean, in every single area, there's just outright no area of our lives where we can say, you know what, I just don't know that I need Jesus here. And so, in light of this, I pray that Jesus, our needy hearts would compel us to be dependent on you in prayer. To say, Lord, I'm not sure how to do this. Can you show me how to do this? Lord, I don't even know how to pray for this. Will you show me how to pray for this? Lord, I'm not sure how to neighbor my neighbor. Will you show me how to do this? Will you show me? Will you show me forever leading, leaning on Jesus in full-blown dependence? God help us. Some of us are here this morning. We might be like, man, that was all great, but I can tell you this. I am not a part of the blood-bought family of God. Lord Jesus, would you save some today? Fold them into the family 
ransom them, save them from their sin. Christ, we pray these things in your name so that you might receive the glory you are worthy to receive. Amen.